This episode of the Sportsman's Nation is brought to you by Outdoor Edge and their complete lineup of replaceable blade knives, fixed blade knives, and game processing kits. Now, we've all been there before, trying to field dress your wild game with a dull knife. This is where Outdoor Edge really steps in. With the Razor Safe system, you can have a brand new razor sharp blade with just the push of a button. No more dull blades and no more problems processing your wild game. To check out all of the products from Outdoor Edge, visit OutdoorEdge.com. And at checkout, enter the discount code NATION30. That's N-A-T-I-O-N-3-0 for 30% off of your purchase. Check out Dogs Are Treat at DogsAreTreat.com. And if you go to their website at checkout and enter the code HXP20% off, you will get 20% off of your entire order on all of their branded products. Leashes, tieouts, medical kits, paws are protected. Build your pack from the ground up and support a fellow houndsman that supports your lifestyle. Enter the code HXP20% off at checkout. Go to their website today at dogsartree.com. This is the Houndsman XP Podcast. Good dog, get that bear. Get that bear in here. The original podcast for the complete houndsman. The podcast that represents our lifestyle of extreme performance. Uniting houndsmen across the globe from east to west, north to south. You know, if you're going to catch a cat or a lion, you know, you have to have teamwork. We take you to the wildest places on earth. Yeah, so how many days how many days a week can you spend up As much as I can to be honest with you. Anytime that I get I'm I'm out there. Join us for every heart pounding adventure on Houndsman XP. I'll tell you like I tell everyone else, I'm gonna hunt whether you're here or not, so you might as well be here. This episode of the Houndsman XP podcast is being released on Memorial Day 2021, and I hope you'll give me just a couple minutes here to editorialize a bit. Memorial Day is a day where we remember the veterans who made the ultimate sacrifice for our freedoms. They gave their lives for our freedoms. And I'm just asking that you take time on this Memorial Day to consider that and also ask yourself, are you living the best life you can to honor that sacrifice? 
As a kid, I grew up in a family of World War II veterans, Korean War veterans, and Vietnam War veterans. They were at family functions and cookouts and weddings and and uh, Memorial Day services, and every one of them wants us to enjoy our freedoms. As an adult, I grew up around many warriors through my military service and my law enforcement career, and every one of them wants us to enjoy the cookout. They want us to enjoy the freedoms that we have, but we have to make sure that we are intentional and we find ways to protect those freedoms. I recently saw a social media post asking if there was any place where hunting with the use of hounds was a right. There are certainly states and places where hunting is a constitutionally protected right, the right to hunt. But the freedom for the ways that we hunt are not necessarily guaranteed. So the use of hounds is not a right, but a freedom that has been granted to us in accordance with the North American Model for Wildlife Conservation and for sound management practices then we are allowed to use hounds to hunt. And that brings us to the difference between freedoms and rights. Rights are inalienable. They are something that are guaranteed to us. But freedoms are things that need to be protected. They need to be fought for. They need to have sacrifices made by those who believe in those freedoms in order to maintain them. So, my challenge to you as houndsmen is that we memorialize the sacrifices that were made to guarantee our freedom, but we also look for opportunities to honor that sacrifice. Can you sacrifice a day of ideal hunting conditions to make an appearance at your state capitol to secure your freedoms for hunting with hounds? Can you sacrifice 10 minutes of your time to write a letter to a representative or contact your Fish and Wildlife Commission, your game managers, and make your voice heard Considering the fact that those freedoms were secured by the blood of U.S. servicemen and women, it seems like a very small sacrifice. And you can look yourself in the mirror and say that I am living my best life. I am doing my part. I promise you that the warriors that gave up their life, the families who on this Memorial Day are remembering the death of a family member want you to exercise your freedoms. So enjoy your cookout, enjoy your time with family, but don't take these freedoms for granted. If you are turning hounds loose today, take a couple minutes at the tailgate Raise a glass 
in honor and remembrance of our servicemen and women who have paid the ultimate sacrifice. Take a few minutes to remember what that sacrifice was for. That track will wait. Those hounds will still run it. But today, let's honor our men and women who have made the ultimate sacrifice in blood for our freedoms. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine is the most comprehensive magazine that represents your lifestyle as a houndsman. If you can hunt it with a hound, it is being covered in the pages of Southern Hound Hunting Magazine. You also get an in-depth look at the men and women who are engaged in this lifestyle, living it every day to the fullest. From the Rocky Mountains to the Southern Swamps and across the ocean with articles about our international houndsmen and what they're chasing across the pond. Go to southernhoundhunting.com, get your subscription for $15 a year. Southern Hound Hunting Magazine, promoting the fair chase experience. We are at the bear hunting mecca. All things bear hunting are happening where we're at this weekend. And uh, this is going to be cool because we got Mark Dufresne, previous podcast guest yeah thanks for having me back chris yeah yeah what what episode were you on do you remember i do not remember oh yeah so and then we've got somebody else with us and we roped him in at the last minute we got heath hyatt from virginia uh back on the podcast you were on the podcast previously too it's been a while back yeah yeah glad to be glad glad to come back yeah and uh just kind of talking about all kinds of stuff but i thought the reason you got roped into this, Heath, is because Mark and I have been talking back and forth for I don't know how long, talking about genetics and scent work and how it affects scenting and, and different things. And, and the scent podcast that we did, we talk about it a lot on the podcast, but the one that we produced um, about scenting is I probably get more questions about that. It's one of the hottest topics we've ever had, so... I thought, who better to have on the podcast than a professional canine trainer? Yeah, professional canine. I don't know about that, but yeah, but can, you put. I can give you my opinion. That's about all. Good. That's for. about all it is, all the way around, isn't it? Yeah, that's all it we is. can do. Yeah. What they what they say about theories 
it's yeah. just an, an opinion with that's, references. That's exactly right. Yeah. 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 So, Heath, how did you uh, – we kind of got into this, but you we were sharing down there, uh, you were running hounds before you became a canine handler. Yeah, I started running hounds – well, I know if you listen to the one podcast, my great-granddad run hounds when I was little. I'm eight, ten years old, and I hated them. They barked all the time. They were outside my room. <laughs> I couldn't sleep at night. So anyway, in in the mid nineties, ninety four, I actually got my first two dogs, which were plot hounds. Um, one was a heavy wet uh, bred Weems dog, <clears throat> and the other one um, uh, was a bias bred dog. And I knew absolutely nothing about them. Started hunting. Basically, I turned them loose. They run everything in the sun. And took me a long time, but anyway, I started. Sounds like the ones I have now. <laughs> well, it's not far. We from all what, have those days. <laughs> yeah, it's not far from what we all probably all have. But, but yeah, so that's how it started. Uh, when I got into law enforcement in '03, um, my department was in the need of a hound because our our narcotics issue was uh, bad, and that's how I ended up getting picked to be a canine handler. So. My focus wasn't really on the narcotics, like we talked. I like to track people. Mm-hmm. And tracking, like you said, is the hardest thing we do, and it's the most dangerous thing we do with our dogs. But that's what got me into canine work, and I've been doing it, you know, 16 out of 18 years of my career so far. You remember your first uh, successful canine apprehension? Yes, I do. Um, and it took me quite a few years to get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So tell us that story. It was a, um, a guy had threatened suicide and he basically took off. We chased him two or three times in the past and kind of the attention thing. He had, there was two dogs actually, myself and one of the other officers from another agency were tracking him and I had the patrol dog. So I would always follow him up because we knew he was armed with a knife. Yeah. And anyway, we come out onto a, uh, a very he- uh, populated trail there in our area. And when we got to that trail, we made a lose. So we were kind of just sitting there talking like, okay, so what area do we need to start basically doing an area search to see if we can pick that track, the exit track back up. And an area search is an um, off-leash. Yes. Canine a patrol dog. Right. And well, actually... Yeah, we, we started working this, this field, a farmer's field, off of this trail. And we basically cornered it into this area. that We needed to work this area. This is probably the only place that he could have went. And we ended up picking, um, there was a gate in the middle of the field. And when we got to that gate, we had a contact, which means the dog went up, stuck his nose to the gate. Mm-hmm. And when we got up to the gate, there was ha- bloody handprints on the gate. Bloody handprints. Bloody handprints, yeah. yes. So we knew he was injured at this point in time. Dog back on the lead, dog back, front dog back on the track. <clears throat> we tracked down through the field, crossed a very tight woven wire fence. We had to throw the dogs over, and the the, the front dog actually started up through a little pine grove. Um, and when he got up through it, he throwed a proximity alert, which means he's in human odor. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, he froze up, and guy was 25 yards in the woods, stabbing himself in the neck. Hmm. Uh, we had less than lethal with us, so we took a um, beanbag shotgun, was able to put a couple rounds on him to get him to stop. Uh, the guys were able to get in and get the knife away from him. 
and we actually um, flew flew the helicopter into the field right there and saved his life and kid's still alive today so yeah that was about a two mile track in end of may so humidity's up you know mm-hmm. you got pollen and stuff you got a lot of things that go into factor when you start tracking in that time of year yeah it was in the evening too it was uh three o'clock in the evening thermals are moving down yep so starting to starting to think about it yeah yep. i mean yeah it's Morning tracking, even tracking's a little different, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. My my first apprehension was a a guy that had snuck into um, uh, Jefferson Proving Ground, which was a military base type thing that had been converted over to a wildlife refuge, but it still had the big fence around it, and it was a common problem for for people to sneak in there and hunt dig dig ginseng you know all kinds of stuff and and one of the officers well two of our officers were working in that area and they found the vehicle and called me and and i was actually i got lucky um just happened to be working that day and i was on just finished up my canine training with my certifications and different stuff and by the time i got there there was a deputy there and different things but in this wildlife refuge it was fenced in there's really nowhere to put no way to set up an effective perimeter to contain somebody so i didn't i didn't know what i was anymore i didn't know what i was doing yeah. <laughs> you know so i get the dog out harness her up find the find the track the human track going through the hole in the fence and uh, had an officer with me we tracked down across a road into a wooded area then we hit this big long ravine and we're tracking up through there, tracking, tracking, tracking. She's showing good track profile. Uh, it was kind of rainy that day, high humidity. And uh, we're tracking along. And she's, I mean, she's just buried in the harness. I mean, just, she's plowing. And uh, we're moving along pretty good. And, and of course, when you're the handler, you get tunnel vision on your dog, watching your dog. And that's why we take another officer with us. And all of a sudden, he's like, there he is. And look up, and the guy's standing there looking at us in disbelief, like, I can't believe you found me. And then, (laughs) yeah. And so he was in there digging ginseng illegally, had a handgun on him. I mean, it it wasn't anything dramatic like yours but the funniest thing was when we got back to the road, the, the deputy and the other conservation officer that were standing there, like, they were in disbelief. They'd been through that that deal a hundred times you know where you call a canine and you stand around and you wait and the canine handler comes out and says oh we couldn't find him yeah and oh he got in the car and left (laughs) yeah tracked to the road he got in the car and left. yeah 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 yeah. but i just thought it'd be good for us to uh kind of kind of get together and mark you and i kind of had a different uh a little bit of a different conversation that we we had been hashing around for a few weeks and lay that out yeah, well, uh, my interest lies in trailing ability with the hounds for hunting. Um, I don't really know all the fancy terminology, but I pay attention to anything that anybody uses a working dog to trail with. You can learn a lot of things. There's a lot of parallels. So uh, Chris and I, we were just sort of talking about the parallels. And, you know, in my mind, the the drug dogs or the human tracking dogs uh, I figured there had to be a lot of studies. There's a lot of um, money involved there in these dogs, big investment. And I just was, was more curious about 
breeding programs for these dogs, um, how they identify, is there any genetic studies, uh, where my, my interest lies in breeding a lot. So I want to know, can I replicate, are there genetic markers through DNA profiling? There's so many different things available today, um, that we can use to maybe shorten up the learning curve. And that's, that's all. So we've been talking about that stuff. Yeah. And the, probably the, the, the art of scenting by, by our hounds is one of the most misunderstood aspects of, of honey. Uh, we don't know how it happens. And of course we all want to talk, you know, find that silver bullet, where every every pup we raise has a phenomenal nose and brains to match it and everything to go into it. And uh, so that's why we rope teeth in because you've been a ma- – are you a master mm-hmm. trainer now? Yeah. And what does that entail as far as – So the, a lot of hours of training. <laughs> right. But basically we have two different categories, and you can get certified as a trainer. And a trainer allows you to run schools for new handlers and new dogs as teams. Uh, to be a master trainer, you go through the extra stuff. And actually, the state allows me to certify dogs as a team through accredited agency. Either they are meet the standard to be put into work, or they do not meet the standard. They need to go back for, for more training, or they need to be watching the program. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I have the ability to certify dogs through the state of Virginia. Um, I still, I, I enjoy the, the training. I think most people with dogs is, you know, being able to see that dog progress. That's the funnest thing for me. I like to take a dog that don't know anything and then catch a person with him. Or, you know, you find narcotics or you get an apprehension. But, um, yeah, so that allow, the state allows me to certify dogs um, in that discipline. So, mm-hmm. yeah. And for me, the um, the biggest reward in running hounds is when you get that dog that you want to breed and you do your research and you find a mate for that dog and you find the traits that you need and then you breed it and then you got those puppies and then you start with those puppies and to see them you know some of them aren't successful some of them are but to see them learn and to grow is uh that's the most rewarding part of it all well, Heath, you've bred you've bred your own line of hounds and different things for years too. So, yeah, you know, and I, I want to hit on what Mark said about the breeding aspect of it. So, I want to go into the to police world. I've got a lot of contacts in Europe. In fact, we import a lot of our dog, most of our dogs, and I won't go into why. But so we import a lot of our dogs. They do not believe what we believe. They don't breed uncles and nieces and cousins. I mean, they take a dog that has no lineage mm-hmm. with this dog. Okay, so Chris's dog, you have these abilities and these traits, and I'm going to take this dog from Mark that matches those, or ha- if this dog has a weakness, I'm going to pick this dog that has that strength, and then I'm going to breed them together. Breeding best to best is right there. They do not, the line breeding as we call it, mm-hmm. they are not a opponent of that. Have they, you had discussions with them about it and yes, asked them why? I have had lengthy discussions with them over it. Um, they're, they're very strict in their, their breeding process. The dogs that some of us keep around, they would not. Um, and, and to their credit that if we have a litter of 10 puppies, we know that probably five of those puppies are going to be okay. And then five of them, you have one, two mediocres and a couple washes. 
Most of the time when they breed, from what I've seen, in fact, the, the dog that I'm running right now is a Dutch Shepherd. They have made that cross twice. And What are the of, percentages that are working in that litter? Eight out of ten. And these are from total, basically, outcrosses? No. Correct. No kin hmm. whatsoever. So they're on to something. Yeah. And, I I mean, I really, I'm, I'm conflicted because I know right. what I know, what I see, what we do. You know, um, I, I've, I've been breeding the same line of dogs for, since 96. I've still got, I'm into my fifth and sixth generation of what I hunt. I am seeing some of those traits starting to weak, mm-hmm. getting weaker. Mm-hmm. Um, this, this is something that is really, so <clears throat> I listened to a podcast, the W podcast, Bear Saragusa talked to uh, Johan Plant. I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but he really got me thinking. He talked about the need for the outcrosses and exactly what these guys are doing over there. And it's really it's really changed my outlook on a few things. And, you know, as we line breed and we go further down in the generations, um, you know, a lot of us, these big game lines have been spread so tight for so long that even though we may be making outcross, the common lineage is just back there a few dogs back because they haven't been here that long. So, you know, you see the reproductive, um, discrepancies, you know, heat cycles, uh, females that that aren't good mothers um you know hard to breed uh hardiness in dog size obviously diminishing there's a lot of things there that can go on that interest me as a breeder and i i still believe in line breeding um but i i'm starting to believe more in the need for that outcross occasionally because as we cull for traits i believe traits are tied together and as we cull those traits, sometimes we lose the traits we don't want to lose. And then all of a sudden, a generation or two later, we're like, where did that nose go? We lost it. And uh, how, how do we get it back? And it's mm-hmm. hard to get back. So, uh, yeah, there's just a lot of really neat things. And that that's really interesting uh, on the European scene, how they approach that. And I'm amazed at that percentage of 8 out of 10. That's That's, that's the incredible. only thing that keeps my my wheels turned. Like how, if they're making an outcross complete outcross, and they're getting better percentages than I'm getting line breeding my own dogs that I've bred for 20 years. you got to pay attention. They're doing something right. Right. Yeah, so so when they're they are breeding outcrosses every time, how do they keep, how, how do they maintain their their breed of dogs or their line of dogs if, if it... What well, would the outcrosses be... Are they are they totally uh, outcrosses different breeds of dogs or within the Dutch Shepherds, just two unrelated lines? How far are they going out? So the conversations that I've had with them, um, and I'll, I'll give you an example. We got a um, a giant Schnauzer, mm-hmm. and the mom come from Czech, the dad come from Russia, completely two non-kin. Same breed, just non-kin. Um, they were looking for for specific traits when they bred this, and this was, they got the majority of what they wanted. So when you talk about the, the, the Dutch Shepherd or the Mali or, um, you know, German Shepherds, 
most of the time, and I'm going to say most, a high percentage of time, they're making crosses that are not kin. Mm-hmm. Like, they're the same breed. Mm-hmm. Now, anybody that knows it about police work, you can you can cross a, any type of the five Mallies, you know, and you you can get a Dutch Shepherd. You know, you can breed a, a Mallee to a Dutchie and end up with a Dutch, or you can cross this and that. What we are seeing a lot of is they're breeding a Mallee and a Shepherd, and we're getting a lot of bigger dogs. Um, and if anybody runs Shepherds, that they would know this. You're getting the shepherd temperament with the Mally drive. Mm-hmm. So we're seeing a lot of you know different. They're mixing those more so now. We're seeing a lot of those. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah. Um, and we'll pick up that conversation right after this word from our sponsor. Houndsman XP is very proud of our partnership with the organization Freedom Hunters. Freedom Hunters is a nonprofit organization that takes America's veterans hunting from field to field, from the battlefield to a field near you when you volunteer your time to take America's warriors hunting with you and your hounds. It's easy. Go to houndsmanxp.com, click on the partnership tab, and it will take you to Freedom Hunters. You can go direct to their website to make donations at freedomhunters.org. Support America's heroes. Let's pay it back. Visit Freedom Hunters at freedomhunters.org or go to houndsmanxp.com and you can find them on our website from field to field. And now back to the show. So so the the whole breeding process are built they are breeding for a utilitarian dog. They're not worried about color, they're not worried about they want certain aspects and then how do they ensure that they have a high success rate with their dogs? I think well, that the, might the, be a the, key. the testing process. So, yeah, they, I mean, uh, Dick Stoll is, anybody can go online and, and look him up. He starts testing these dogs at 10 weeks old, you know. And if we raise puppies, you know, we do certain things with mm-hmm. them. And we're looking for, you know, this, this, and this. And, um you know, he starts testing those dogs at 10 weeks old, and they know. Like, the testing process that they use, I don't feel confident enough in it that I would do it myself because I haven't seen enough of 10-week-old puppies that take the test that they do. Right. But they can tell you at 12 weeks old, we're going to use this one Which for nose. Which ones are going to make it. And it's all nose work. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're looking at nose work. Same thing that we are, as houndsmen we want is a dog to be able to, to track, trail, and tree. Um, now the apprehension part of it is a little bit of a different test. Um, so you, you're looking, you're going into, to bite, bite work. You're looking at the grip, which goes back to genetics. Does he got a deep grip, a shallow grip? You know, there's a whole different set of things you're looking for Mm -hmm. there. But as far as tracking and narcotics work, you're looking for the nose work and the Europeans believe this. And I may have heard you say this on a podcast, Mark, that, they want a dog that's got a calm mind. Yes. Like a dog that is out of his mind and yep. they don't like them. Yeah. They don't want them. And if they end up breeding those, that is an automatic call mm-hmm. because the dog can't think in a red state. In in my personal selection process, I'm at the point, the prey drive part of it, to use your term, I never called it prey drive, but it explains it. 
you know, where is there the amount of prey drive you want, but still the brains to turn it on right. and turn it off. Because a dog has to be able to, in my opinion, especially guiding, you have to have a dog good around people, kids. You're in parking lots, at grocery stores. You don't know where you're going to end up. Hikers, uh, dogs encounter your, you know, your dogs um, are with hikers sometimes up on the AT. And you can't have an ill dog in any way, shape, or form. Never mind towards dog, but towards people. So I'm trying to select personally for the dogs that that I enjoy more in the yard, and they're the level-headed ones. Now when they see their animal, they can their prey, they can turn that on, and it's 100% go. But but yet in the yard, you you know, I'm trying to look for those dogs that are they're just more enjoyable. I find they trail more, they work through situations more. Um, and I really see it in cat hunting. You know, bear are a bigger animal with more scent. Mm. Um, I like to cat hunt, and I really see it in the cat hunting with uh, situations like partially frozen rivers. And a cat will run the edge of that ice, you know, just making time on the dog because the dog's falling in the river, getting washed under ice. I mean, there's all sorts of things. So a really smart dog will drift that. They'll get on the downwind side, and they'll drift that track. And they'll never go into the ice. They'll run the edge of the river, and when the cat swings out, they cross the river, and then they spin the cat down. And he'll usually go back to the river in those situations. So the smart dogs know how to keep time. And, and I've had, for instance, two dogs in that situation, my old Bryn dog, and then a dog that was related to her but younger, uh, would have been a niece. And Bryn was, by the end of this, uh, a mile ahead of this other dog. The other dog stayed on the track. Bryn just ran down the side of that river, winding that cat. And I saw the cat. I could have killed it, but I let it just cross the road and caught the dogs, and I, I had a good day. Uh, but it really opened my eyes to the intelligence part of that um, and in realizing how to work through tough situations. Or a cat will spin down, and when the conditions of the snow is mealy, the scent isn't good, um, that cat will run its backtrack figure eights. It's been on its own track several times, and some dogs just get bogged down on that. The really good dogs cut the circle. That's right. Yeah. And they don't say a word. They come off the track, and they spin a circle. And when you watch her, with GPSs, it's awesome. When you watch that dog, just all of a sudden you hear boop and off, and you know that's the cat right there. And that's an intelligence thing to do that. Um, so I look for stuff like that. Yeah. And I think you said something about prey drive, good around the yard, good around people and prey drive and temperament of the dog are two different, two different things. You know, a prey drive type dog, one with high prey, they can, you've got to, you've got to be the alpha dog in that pack and teach them when to turn it on, when to turn it off. But, um, we we call it capping. Okay. Capping that drive. Yep. Is what we, yeah. we yeah. So that dog's gotta know all right, it's time to go and you, you th- I always think about the old timers. Like I'm an envious. They used to be able that dog lay on the porch until they were ready to go hunting. And yeah. when they go hunting, they caught game. Yep. So yep. Bryn, for instance, uh never turned her into a house dog is she five, six well, whenever I went to bear camp, she was just such a fun dog, the customers loved her. And she'd crawl right up in their sleeping bags with them. Never house trained or never house broker. That dog 
would not leave camp. There could be bait barrels at camp. There could be bears coming into the bait barrel. She wouldn't walk out of the dooryard. She wouldn't bother the chickens in the yard, but you hit the woods and that dog was gone instant. Mm -hmm. And she just knew. She knew. I didn't teach that, but I, I paid attention to it and I learned from her. She taught me more than I ever taught her. And so now I look for that in dogs. And, uh, you know, my, my process with puppies, so say when they're, you know, six, eight weeks old and you're starting to feed them, getting them on hard food and stuff. And, you know, I feed one big pan in the middle of the pen and I just sit there and I watch and, and you'll see, there'll be a bully in the bunch, you know, and he'll start shouldering in there and he's trying to shove them out. And if you let that go, those dogs, you know, these are very gritty dogs. And I found if you, if you get on them young like that, you don't have issues. You know, you just, you just gotta be a little rough with them, lay them over, teach them, what's right, what's wrong. And uh, if you do that for two or three weeks, then all of a sudden they just, they come into their role. They know their role. I feel like canines, you know, they're looking for somebody to show them what's right and what's wrong. And so that's my job, you know, as the dog handler. Uh, this is where you turn it on. This is, you know, on a bear, this is where you want to be aggressive. In the, in the yard, you want to shut it off and you want to lay on your house and, and chill out. So... So as a master trainer, Heath, uh, we're kind of scattering out here a little bit, but you brought up a good point, Mark, you know, at, around the feed pan when they're that age, you know, what sort of things do you do in police training? Because you're talking about high energy, high prey drive dogs, dogs that can hurt you and hurt other people. And so the handler has got to be in charge. So how does a police, how do you train your handlers to establish that dominant role over their patrol dog? Oh, um, again, I, I know this is a catch all. Every dog's different. Every handler's different. We, if we're working in narcotics dogs, we're looking for that medium dog. I don't need the dog that's over the top. Like we're used to 10, mm -hmm. 15 years ago. If that dog didn't run through a brick wall, we didn't want it. Those dogs are hard to train. Yep. Same with the hounds, yeah. So, for sure. So if you got one that's trying to chew its way out of the box <clears throat> on every doghouse, I mean, yeah. I've seen dogs that you walk up and there's half a doghouse there. The tin roof is eaten off. Now they'll fight a bear to the death, but right. is that dog one you really wanna right. mess with? Well what we found out through training and and going to seminars and stuff like that is those dogs are the ones that are easily frustrated and they don't really have no, they, they, they can't think through a process. Right. They so, like brains. So if I'm looking for a, a narcotics dog, I want something that's kind of even kill, like you're talking about. Um, when I go to work, I want you to use your nose and go to work. Um, patrol dog is a little different. You know, I've got to have a dog and we've domesticated these dogs. And now I'm saying, okay, go bite a person mm -hmm. and hold that person. Those dogs are, you're looking for different things. But so to go back to your original question, how do I teach my guys to, to, to be able to, and I don't, I don't necessarily, we're not going to dominate the dog. I, if you've been, you was in canine, alpha roll, alpha roll, alpha roll. We don't hardly ever do that anymore. Um, there's other training mechanisms and other, other ways that we can use. But if I've got a dog that we're having issues with, we go back to food. And I know that when I was on the podcast before, like, we hand feed our dogs. We hand, they're working, they're working for food. Mm -hmm. And they learn that dad 
is feeding me. So dad's got a little bit higher status in his pack order than what I do. Right. So depending on the problem, depending on the issue, and depending on how bad it is, if I can control it with food, I do that. And I usually have my, my new guys, and I don't care if it's a narcotics dog, tracking dog, patrol dog, you know, the quickest way to build a bond with a dog is through food. And it's like the first couple months, I, my dogs are all fed. Uh, the dog that I'm working now, I got him when he's 11 months old, imported from Holland. The first two months of his life, he had he eat out of my hand every day. Mm-hmm. And we established that bond. Um, that goes back to a pre, you know, primeval genetic thing in them because when they're, they get their food from the mother, the father, mm-hmm. you know, so you're tapping back into that hereditary thing within that dog. You know, if you take a easy, easy one to look at is like a pack of coyotes and those pups don't leave the den for 10, 12 weeks, mom and dad are bringing food to them, and there's still some genetic markers there, same way with the dog, wouldn't you say, Heath? Yeah, yeah, and if we've got a dog that is a little bit more higher strung, or we need, you know, we, we, we'll we use different, I mean, we, we may use lead corrections, or, you know, we may use something else. A lot of times, if you'll just take something away from them, dog needs food, water, and air to survive. You start taking some of those things away from them, you can get them in line pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And I don't mean that in a, a negative way either. Like, you know, there's positive punishment. You know, if you know the four quadrants of operant conditioning, I mean, we can, you know, we can use different things. I can levy with that dog. So if, if I've got one that's out of control, we'll put him up, we'll start using food. If that's not working, then we'll just go through a, a list of like a, Use of force continuum. We'll just kind yeah, of go through it. Yeah. Go through. Okay, this is what works for him. We'll pull it out and start working it. So, but most of our dogs now. I mean, like I said, the dogs that we had, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, especially patrol dogs. Nobody got in close to them. No. Nope. If you got there, if you got within the lead range, you were getting you getting hit. Those are not the dogs we're using anymore. We're using dogs that are social. We're using dogs that I can I can take my dog in a school right now, and have him around kids now. If they get to pulling on his ears and tail and stuff, probably going to have a little bit of a problem. But I can take him in there, and, and he's fine. So yeah. the the type of dog, the style of dog that that we're used to, times have changed, and we're not using that. We're not using those red when, dogs. Yeah, when, when first started in law enforcement, I started in 1990. And a canine handler, if you went past the car, I mean, that dog was hitting the bars on the windows in the back mm-hmm. and – some of that's trained into them, you know, to be protective of the patrol vehicle and stuff like that. But I mean, we've probably all walked by a dog box and man, the I've same been, thing. I mean, they come out of there ready to eat your shoulder off. Yeah, but I've been I've been out before I was a handler and just patrol officer. You know, when the call comes out, dogs loose, you're looking for cover because he's not uniform friendly, <laughs> yeah. and you're going to find some place to get. I have I climbed a tree one time. I was actually running a track on a guy that that took off on us um and i was going through the through the valley and a patrol dog was out there too and he was supposed to be well the dog got loose mm. and here we are i climbed a tree my dog shadows down on the ground i'm thinking she can fend for herself and get away if she needs to but yeah when chester got loose you got in a tree and that's yeah yeah and i mean that's the dogs that we were what i was trained and brought up with 
I mean, but now, and, and you know, you talked about they're not uniform friendly. That was a training issue. Yes. You don't ever do bite work in a in a uniform because you're just telling that dog that blue looks good. Yeah. Our tack guy, <laughs> you know, something that we we learned with our tack Blue's guys. Blue's on the menu. You know, they wear big bulky kits. You know, when they've got a full kit on, I mean, they look like the Michelin man. What's our bite suit look like? The Michelin, Michelin man. man. Yeah. We don't do that anymore. Like, my, guy, my dogs are out with our tack guys. They're running free. They're clearing buildings with them. This is part of your pack. You work with this pack. So that was a whole training issue that, yeah. that t- as time has went on, we've... We've gotten smarter. Yes. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. gotten smarter. So let's tie it over to some of the things that, that we can do with hounds in that aspect. Have you used any of the training techniques, uh, your selection techniques in your hounds, Heath? Yeah, and I'm still failing at it. <laughs> I mean... I, Me too. We had this conversation on the way down here. Like, you know, you got... 10 pups and i don't know whether you just grab in there and pick one out or you start watching them you know if if everybody's lucky enough to keep those pups that are 10 12 15 weeks old it's a little easier to pick um the one of the things that i i really look for and we do this with our police dogs too is we'll set up little um like little things for the dogs to do you know i know everybody hides the food and everybody does this we'll set up little things for them to do I don't care if the dog fails. I want to see if he recovers and if he how fast he recovers. If I've got a dog that just shuts down after he can't do it, that's a that's pretty much he does that one or two times. That's something I'm going to probably eliminate. Um, does that make sense? What I'm saying about the yeah, recover part? I, I, I loud look, noises, right? Loud noises. Yes, I, and I'm I purposely do not try to hide uh, my puppies and keep them mowing the lawns. My kids are shooting squirrels in the trees. Yep. Uh, you know, the chickens, you know, we got roosters out there fighting around them. I mean, any stimulus like that, I want to see how the dog reacts. Mm-hmm. And just like you, if I've got one that goes and hides in the corner and can't handle it, I, I've lost interest in that right I don't care if it's eight weeks old. I've, I've yep. probably lost interest, and I'm going to move on to the ones. I want the one who Wants comes to sit up. There, yeah, sits there and looks at him and looks watches at it. it. It's and like, he, look at that. He's not scared, but he's he's intrigued by it. Yeah. And he, he wants to explore, and he looks at it. Those are the dogs mm-hmm. that kind of, my me personally, that's what I, I like to watch with a litter of pups. When yeah. you talk about setting up, setting your hound pups up. So one of the things that we do for our police dogs, and I really like this exercise, and I like it for my, so get a baby pool. Fill it full of empty bottles, two-liter bottles, you know, water bottles. Just fill it full. Put some put some dog food in there and watch those dogs go in and go for it. Um, that will show you a lot of dogs will jump in it, and when them bottles start moving, it's like, oh, crap, what is this? Them crinkly water yeah. bottles. And, and then you'll have some that will just dive right in there and don't care. And I watch for those dogs, too, because we're talking about the dogs that are get really high. Right. You know, like you said, they'll just go in and – do whatever and don't care. Um, I like the middle kill dog, the kind that goes in, oh, wait a second, checks it out, and then goes about his business. If I've got them that jump out and don't want nothing to do with it, I'm kind of like Mark. That's you know, that's kind of a no-no. Um, lawnmower, I mean, I have my kids beating pots and pans when they're yeah. feeding. Yeah. Um, you know, anything noise-related, like, I mean, there's a list of things you can do, all kinds of things. Um I've even set up 
uh, you got to be creative. A box fan and put the streamers on it. Yeah. In front of the the dog food to see if you know wind hitting their face. You know, there's all kinds of little things you can do. So I do um, like I'll put. I'm up in Maine, so you know when I'm out cat hunting, we find shed moose antlers all the time. Mm-hmm. So I'll put moose antlers all in where I keep the puppies, and and I put them points up. And they rock and they and they roll. Well, you'll watch. There'll be a pup there that's, you know, he's like king of the mountain. You know, he'll climb up on that thing. And it doesn't matter if it's rolling around. He's rolling the puppies off of there, keeping his balance. You know, and then you'll see one step on an antler and it rolls him over. And he goes and hides in the corner because he, he doesn't know how to react to it. So all sorts of things thing. like that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, and again, it's what, what are you looking for as a hunter? Like, what, what area, you hunt a different area than I hunt. Um. You know, most of our timber is either open or laurel thickets. You know, you've got the pine thickets you can't walk through. Right. Um, so what I test what I test my puppies about going in tight places, and that's something we test our police dogs for, mm-hmm. too. I've got a lot of dogs that won't go up in a corner and search a corner because when you start shutting that space down on them, they're like, eh, they'll back up. So they're not using their nose because they're too worried about the environment. Mm-hmm. So depending on what we want, you know, what we're using our dogs for, one of the things I do, and I, it's so simple, and I'm sure everybody listening to this podcast does it, is I start dropping food in the yard, I, like little tracks. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know yeah. you've pro- we probably dropped hot dogs and stuff, yeah. tracking yeah. dogs. Um, I've, I start dropping food at a younger age to see which one of those dogs, um, narcotics-wise, we want we wanted to test the dog's hunt drive. So a little bit different than the prey. Prey's moving. Hunt is how long will he look and stay with that. I typically, for a testing a narcotics dog, and it's the old toy test, we take a toy, we throw it out in the grass, dog goes after it, gets it, we get, bring the toy back, we spin the dog around, throw the toy again. I want that dog to stay after looking for it for two minutes. That's my shutoff, okay? Mm-hmm. I don't care if he finds it or not. I just want him to look for two minutes because it takes me about a minute and a half to search a car. It takes me about two minutes to look for a dope in a room. So I've set that we've set that process up to test that time limit. So I know mm-hmm. if that dog will stay after it for two minutes, I can do my job with him. So um, when I when I throw the food out, I'll, sometimes I'll just take a handful of food and just scatter it out, and I'll watch the dog after it's all gone. I'll watch for the dog that stays the longest, because then Mark, I'm getting my trail dog right. Not yeah. all the time. It's but exactly, a good start. Yep, it's exactly the same process. So. I've got kids. I had two boys. You know, they wanted rabbits. We got a little farm going. You know, we got all sorts of critters. Well, they didn't take care of their rabbits. So dear old dad let his let their rabbits go. Teach them a lesson. Well, then the rabbits started populating. And there was, <laughs> it, it got to the height where I would take them to neighbors' houses and drop them off, and I'd populate their yards. But then I found out, I started watching litters of puppies that I had, and it was the greatest thing in the world. Because they'd come out in the evening and they'd feed. So I'd just go over and I'd have six or eight pups in the kennel. I'd just kick the door open and I'd watch. And, of course, the rabbit hops and they sniff it. And then it hops and they sniff it. Well, I'm telling you, in probably two hours, you can have an eight-week-old puppy opening and chasing. And then, of course, with these rabbits, they'd go into brush piles. Then I said, well, this is interesting. Because I know they can't see them in these brush piles or in holes. So there was one litter of pups that I had in... uh, I had a dog stay for eight hours, and I had at nine o'clock at night. My wife said, "Would you get that dosh darn dog out of that brush pile?" It stayed at it, just digging and digging and chewing, trying to get in there, and and it was interesting to me because every dog there was different. They all fell off at a different rate. Some made it twenty minutes, 
There was two of them that made it for probably three or four hours. And then there was that one that went, you know, and so I started watching things like that to see who will stay with scent the longest. And I love the trail. Uh, For me personally, a big part of the hunt is getting the bear on its feet or the cat on its feet. Now you've got a lot of other traits that are important once it's on its feet, but if you can't get it on its feet, you got nothing. So trailing has always fascinated me, and uh, I had some old-time cat hunters teach me how they cat hunted and how they started dogs. And and I believe this, you kind of touched on it, Heath, uh, it's a big part of building a relationship with your dog. These cat hunters hunt one dog at a time, and you go out there and you trail with that dog. Not on a leash, but you're just working with them. You're, you know, they lose the track, you find the track, you call them over, they trust you. And, and I believe for Bryn, that was that was the fun part for me is we had such, I didn't even have to talk to that dog. She knew what I wanted after the first year. And uh, you just, the dog trusts you, you know, you help that dog, you work together, um, and you build that relationship. And, you know, they push a little harder. They know you want that track because you're right there with them. So when they would have given up and come out, you're still in the woods. Come here, come here. You know, hissing them up, talking them up. And then they push a little harder. Well, pretty quick, you got a dog that'll trail 15 miles cold trailing, you know, on a 10 or 12-hour old track. And, and that's that's the kind of stuff I like to see out of them. I want to take it back. You said something earlier there, that pup that, that um, stayed eight hours in that brush pile. One, I want to get Heath's opinion of that but i want to know how that pup turned out so yeah that how did that transfer over to honey she was uh absolute natural um loved the dog to death but what got her in trouble was on the first nasty bear it was about 130 pounds so she was running and treeing and i mean she was what you dream about you know i started hunting her i think she was around 10 months old and um just right start to finish, nice, nice job, opening on track, cold trailing with some of the old dogs a little bit because of the rabbit work. Well, she had a very high, I guess you'd call it the prey drive, and she went in there on the first bear, and it tore her up, and Mm -hmm. um, she would never stick with a bear after that, and I I ended up having to get rid of her. Mm -hmm. Um, But, yeah, it's, it's a balancing object some of those dogs that fell off in the middle those dogs went on to be really solid dogs and they weren't as gritty but they were gritty enough so the one that was you know over the top there she she didn't make it and it wasn't it was just a sometimes it's a matter of luck on which animal which which bear do you get that Mm -hmm. dog on yeah if they make it through that first year and, and they don't get torn up you're good to go but boy one or two bears in and they hit that bear and it's just bad luck sometimes yeah so heath you've got the same litter of pups that mark has at your house okay and you see see this type of behavior in pup what what are your thoughts on that man it's hard to let that one go i mean you know that one you know we talked he just said it natural we don't teach that dog anything we just put it in the woods mm-hmm. and you know we i had this conversation with one of my friends at home uh, a couple months ago we was talking about training dogs you know, we're not dog trainers. You take those natural dogs, you turn them loose, you show them, show them what they're supposed to run, you correct them from what they're not supposed to be doing. There's no training to it. They do it. Now, you want to talk about training dogs, you take the mediocre dogs that you've got to persuade a little bit and help along the way. You know, that's where it shows your training ability. Um, 
we all want natural dogs because they're easy. Right. Like, just turn them loose. But They make you look good. Yeah, I mean, you want to pick her out because, you know, she's showing you so much at that young age. And I want to talk about maturity level. Uh, she's showing you so much at that age. You're like, I've got something here. Yeah. I know it. But for me, if I was looking at that litter, I would probably pick me one or two more that was in the middle. And I usually hardly ever take one pup. I usually keep a couple. Yep. I, just I like try to, to do the same. I like two to, to three just <laughs> until a certain age. Yep. And then you can narrow it down again. But you got to have two or three to yep. start with. Um, so, you know, let's talk about maturity level. And I, I, I may hit on this the last time. If I did, I'm sorry. But we take let's take our apprehension dogs because we're doing the same thing. You're taking a, a year-old dog. And putting him in a bear race, sooner or later they gonna catch one. Yeah. And like you said, if they can get through the first year, but you're asking a juvenile, and this is how I tell my police guys, I'm taking a, a Europeans do not let their dogs go into police work until three years old. I mean, right. we've, we've, yep. we've hit that three years old. Okay. I'm taking a year and a half old dog that is a juvenile. We're, we're looking at a 14 year old kid, mm-hmm. and I'm putting him in the ring with Mike Tyson. You put her in a ring with Mike Tyson. I send my dog in to clear a building, and Joe Dirt's in there, and he's got to bring him out. And if Joe Dirt don't want to come out, he's going to fight my dog. So I'm putting my year-and-a-half-old dog in there with Mike Tyson. Now, a slim number of those dogs can take a butt kicking and are going to come on out of there. But mm-hmm. there's a greater yeah percentage that... So most of those are going to take a butt kicking and say, I don't want no part of this. And it's not that they're bad dogs or going to be bad dogs. It's because their maturity level at that age, they're, they're, they cannot handle that pressure at that age. Now, you put that dog in there at three years old, it's a different type. It's a different, it's ball game on. This, this is a comment by an old bear hunter uh, that stuck with me for years. And it was Joe Hudson that told me this. And this made me really think about it and kind of put it into perspective for me so i can't remember what age he was but he was pretty young in school and back in the day the teachers took the ruler to your knuckles if you mouthed off and he mouthed off and he got just just wrapped right over the knuckles till his hands were bloody he said to this day and joe's in his 70s now he says i can still just about feel that he says by the time i was 18 i was in a fist fight every day and he says i can't remember one of those things or what i fought about but he was mature enough then to handle it differently. And, and that really caused me to think a lot about these young dogs and what you put them into. Yeah, and we get a lot of – I hope I didn't cut anybody off. I mean, no. we, get a, I mean I, we get a lot – a lot of my guys, and I'm guilty. We all like to see that six-month-old dog running trend. You betcha. We love it. But I also know now through my police experience, I, I've learned so much. I've learned to be patient. That's one of the things I picked up from what – what i've done with my police dogs is i like that i like that dog doing this at six months old but i also know that if i turn this dog loose at nine months old which i had a cameron male that i did the same thing nice nice dog nine months old went in got the crap beat out of him it took me almost another year to get him back where he was at before that he went on and made a nice dog, and mm-hmm. was one of my nicer dogs. But <clears throat> I really set that dog back, getting him beat up. So, if you've got patience, you're probably going to come out ahead of things. If you don't, then yep. you're going to go through a lot more dogs because you're going to put that dog in a situation that can't handle. And once it happens, right, you know, it's too late. Yeah, and and patience is is a big part of it. Um, 
uh, sort of one of my mentors, Roy Clark. He's probably the greatest gift he gave me was to teach me patience with a dog. And that man, there was a cross I made with uh, with one of Roy's dogs. And uh, so I had a young dog that uh, I had two young males out of it. He had a male and a female. It was only four of them. Well, his female got on the wrong bear pretty early, got hurt, got on another bear, got hurt. It set her back. It's taken him about two years. Now, hes I just asked him today, I says, now, how's Beauty doing? And he says, boy, I got her right now. But why did he stay with her? Because he liked her. You know, he just, did, something he saw... about her. He's, and that's his knowledge, his years. There was something there he liked. And, and I'll tell you. There were other things that that dog was doing. What he would always tell me is he said, when she smells bear, he said she's out of her mind. He said she just... She'll come out of that dog box sideways, upside down, and he just liked, even as a young puppy, she was so turned on by bear scent, and I, and maybe that, maybe I'm wrong, but maybe that was part of it, but he definitely had some things there mm-hmm. that he saw, and, and he stuck with her, and she's a very nice dog. The determination to catch is what he saw. Yeah. That's what you see. When you see that kind of behavior, Yep. nothing's going to stop that dog from getting to where it needs to be and i guess that's what roy's is and, and that's exactly with my dogs that's what i bred into roy's four was the particular male that i picked what he threw he was an old dog 12 years old when i first bred Bryn to him harry joe was the name and and he was known for produce he wasn't the prettiest dog he was kind of gommy looking big thick but he said buddy he says that dog will put it in them and he says they'll go through hell and back to get there and and the offspring are like that and and that is what i like to me it's more of the i call it the old school plot um you know a lot of us have bred you know vet bills are expensive Uh, a lot of people are coon hunting different they don't need the grit well i i still uh, roy always calls it nerve and and i like the nerve but he'll be the first one to tell you he says you got to have intelligence with it he says, you got to have a bear back them up a few times, and if they don't learn, he says, they ain't going to make it. He says, the ones that learn, and they learn how to do it, he says, those are the ones you want. They're just going to work a bear. They're going to get their bites when they can, but they're going to be smart about it. And uh, and he's patient. You know, uh, some of these dogs that I've had out of Roy's dogs, I would call them, they have moments of greatness when they're young. You see a hunt, you're like, oh, man, that's great. And then maybe they're out of pocket two or three times. But what he's taught me is if you've seen something that you like, and it's different for everybody, but for me personally, I've seen something that reminds me of so-and-so or I like that, and I've stuck with him. And I'll tell you what, by the time three to four years old, you're like, holy cow, you got a dog. Yeah. Yeah. Heath, do you think we're putting our hounds in losing situations at too young of an age, or what's your opinion on that? Because we've all heard the the – We've read it on the internet. Some guy will, you know, he'll get on Facebook and he'll say, what, what age should I start my puppy on bear? And you'll get everything from two years old to, if they ain't doing it by nine months, I'm not feeding them for another two, you know? I think it's personal preference for me. I, fo- I, put, I do a lot of groundwork with my dogs up to a year old. A lot of groundwork. I'm... You know, I'm feeding them in the truck. I'm yeah. loading them. I'm leading them. I'm taking them on walks. There's a lot of stuff they can learn and yes. never go on a bear hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Um, starting starting a dog starts the day they hit the ground. Yeah. Really. Yeah. But for I feel our, like our conversation. I would say more so than not, we put dogs that are not prepared 
for that or not mature enough, we do. And I, I would say that half the time we're lucky and the other half we're not. I, I've ruined a lot of beautiful young dogs. And, and I, t- I typically wait until they're about a year old to start. I try to time all my litters. I won't breed a female where they come in six, seven months old right at May or June or whenever you're starting to bear hunt because you know you can't leave that dog at home. Sooner or later, you're going to put it in the truck too soon. Mm-hmm. So I purposely try to breed my dogs so they're, they're a year, maybe they're 14 months, 15 months when I come into bear season. And, and then I know I've got at least a better percentage chance of not ruining them. But within those dogs, the individual dogs, is there's some I won't even touch that I just call it, they just got too much puppy in them. And those are the dogs that they, you know mentally they can't, but then you'll you'll pick one out that's all business. You take it out there, and it's all, it's it doesn't want to play. Somebody comes over to play with it, and it shoves them off, and it wants to get back to the scent. It wants to smell something, and and those are the ones I typically I just judge them. And this is the one I'll start first, and once I get them going good, then I might pick old so and so and and start that one. But every dog is, in my experience and opinion, is different on when they're ready to start it is yeah i mean like i said my dutchie that i'm running now i mean at a year old he'd fight mike tyson <laughs> yeah. he, he would yeah. and he could take that whipping but i didn't i don't want to put him there i mean i know and now he's three and he'll still do what he needs to do but i think it's no he could take mike tyson well maybe i don't know <laughs> but he'd definitely, when he was younger he'd give him a shot but you know you're right and it's just knowing your dogs it's knowing your breed Knowing, you know, it helps if you know the background of those dogs. And, I mean, I think everybody in here knows their background of their dogs. And, um, yeah, I, if if you could t- take one thing is slow down a little bit, spend a little more time with Patience, them. Patience. That's time. right. Like I said, why? what are you gaining? And I would ask myself this. Why, what am I gaining taking that nine-month-old puppy to the woods and getting him beat up by accident other than my ego? Because that's all it is. It's all oh, it I've is. got a nine-month-old dog. Watch it. Okay. This one will fight a bear at six months old. Yeah. yeah. But I want that dog at six years old that is a bear dog. Yeah. There and you I think go. you have to look at the long term instead of the short term. And I think we get short term. Well, it, a it's lot. it's society in general, in my opinion, has moved towards intolerance of patience. Everybody, everything's got to be quick now, now, now. And sometimes we have to sort of step back and say, what, you know, think just like what you said. Think about it for a minute. What am I really gaining by three months or four months? I'm, I'm really not gaining anything. The dog's just not, the, that pup is not mentally prepared. He thinks he is. He's like, he's like when we were 10 years old and we thought it was a good, good idea to, to jump off the roof of the house. <laughs> That's right. You know, yeah. it, it, oh, that'll be fun. Yeah. You know, watch this. And, we're putting these puppies in situations that they're not mentally prepared to handle yet, and we end up setting them back. And I, I think that is part of why we see lower success rates in the litters of these these pups that are hitting the ground in our hounds. The genetics are there, they're, but... We make training errors, just like we talked about before, you know, the, the uniform-friendly dog. <laughs> we found out that that was a training issue. That wasn't a genetic issue. That was a training issue. You know, and we're all going to make those mistakes as houndsmen, but the really good houndsmen, the guys that are in it for their lifetime, 
they learn from those mistakes. Yes. The other guys never even figure out that they made a mistake. They just keep doing it over and over. But the really good guys pay attention and they they modify their methods and and they seem to fix the problem. And that's where I was I was kind of going with that was I was having the conversation with somebody here yesterday um about the difference between a houndsman and somebody with dogs. You know, a houndsman is a, the person, you know, you take you mentioned Roy Clark. Roy's been breeding his line of dogs for how many years? Oh, they they're sixty years in. Probably. Sixty years in. So he when he's watching those pups, he's been breeding breeding those dogs. He knows what he wants to see at certain times. He doesn't need them at three months old going and running and catching a bear. He sees, look at that. He did that. Oh, I've seen that before. Watching the squirrels with their yeah. puppies on a chain. Yeah. And oh. the, the one that's sitting there watching, you know, they're timbering the squirrels and they're watching. Those are dogs that are paying attention. Yeah. And he sees that, that in the pups. Now, for you, Heath, you know, you've learned all that through experience. You know, maybe not 60 years worth, but the same thing. It's through experience of of dealing. You know when you're selecting a police dog or now you've transferred it over to hounds. You can look at that and you can think, I can do something with that. They don't have to be fighting Mike Tyson, but right. you got to see the potential. The potential's there. Now it's up to me to make sure that he's successful. And now a quick word from our sponsor. Dakota 283 offers you unparalleled protection for your hounds. We're talking about military-grade kennel crates. Uh, I got got one of these two-door kennel crates here at the house. It is super heavy-duty. It's got slap latches on it that are stainless steel. Easily fits in the back of an SUV, or if you're traveling with a camper shell, it's a great way to keep your dog protected while you are traveling. You just got to check out their Dash Series. This is a watering system, and I've used a lot of these portable waterers over the years. But this system is all integrated into one unit. And the way it's designed out of high-impact plastic, the water stays in the tank when you're not using it because you can put a plug in it. Check them out. Uh, the 3.5 is also compact enough that I can store it behind the seat of my pickup truck while I'm out hunting when it's super cold. I've had exterior tanks before. And as soon as I go to cold climates, then I've got to figure out how I'm going to get water to my hounds. And the dash takes care of that. So check out Dakota 283 at Dakota283.com. And at checkout, enter the code HXP10 and get 10% off of your order. Well, I think, you know, when you talk about a houndsman, you know, it's, it's being able to take a couple dogs and watch them and pick out a, okay, I can take that and, that I can make it, or that dog's already got this. I can make that. Um, I've got two pups at the house now that are eight months old, and my male pup. This is five generations on my old dog. He carries himself just like my old dog. His gait in his rear end is just like my old dog. Genetically can, inherited traits. That I can come see through. that gait in yeah. him. Yeah. So. Of course, I'm going to take that. He's got something there. Them genetics are lining up somewhere. Now right. let's put it into the woods. Yeah. So it's just, like I said, it's the gate. It's the gate that I see that in my old dog that I see in him. Pieces. You see little pieces of the puzzle along the way. And those are the ones for me that I hold my interest more 
they remind you just uh just like i've got you know certain dogs that will jump all over at feeding time and then there's one or two out there they'll jump on their house and they sit there they don't touch you they don't jump on you happy as can be to see you but i'm like that was Bryn. she would just get on that dog house and she'd wait patiently for her food didn't you know when you were about three steps from her she'd bark and there's dogs i see now that have that same exact trait and this a litter mate to them will be spinning around your ankles three times tripping right. you up and flinging mud all over and i'm like okay i, I like that one <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so so what would you each of you i'll start with you heath you get a you get a guy that's uh, fresh, you know, new. He wants to get involved in hounds, bear hunting, cat hunting. Um, what advice would you give them for selecting selecting dogs? Oh, um, first of all, I would probably tell them if this is your first time, I would take somebody with you that knows what they're doing. Thank you. And I would buy me a started or a dog that has got mm -hmm. some experience because taking a young dog that knows nothing and you know nothing is hard and you're probably going to mess up that dog worse or make mistakes and it may discourage you from even going in the long term so for me i'll mentor i'll if i can't mentor you i'll send somebody send you to somebody that can and we'll get you a dog that's got some potential mm -hmm. and I'll help you and I'll work with you or, or however, that's what you should be looking for. Because I guarantee you all of us sitting here had somebody took us under their wing and helped us along the way. And I definitely had that. I've been blessed with the people that's, that's come into my life and are friends of mine and has taken the time to teach me. They were patient enough to put up with you. Yeah. And me too. So Absolutely. Yeah. Try not to buy a puppy. If you don't know anything, I, I <laughs> stay try. away from the internet. <laughs> yeah. Get somebody that knows what they're doing and will take you and help you. And that way, two things there. You don't you don't get your butt burnt because we've all had those. Yeah. A couple of my first dogs were bad, mm -hmm. and I didn't know no better. Um, buy a dog that started and running and treeing because that will make it more enjoyable for you. And go from there. And mm -hmm. as as that time goes, you know, you will learn and pick up. And the ones that's going to do it's going to stay, and the ones that's not two or three years into it, they're doing something else. Yeah. So it kind of works that way. Mark, what do you think? Boy, he pretty much nailed it. Um, don't jump into getting a dog. If if It's one thing if you've been around hunting dogs all your life. If you have experience with bird dogs or duck dogs, that's a little different ball game. But to a guy that's never handled a dog, and, and hasn't owned a dog, resist the urge to jump in and get a dog. Go find somebody to hunt with. See if you enjoy it first. Like the good and the bad, you stay out there till midnight or till 1 in the morning on his pouring rain, and you get that man's dogs. And you'll see, okay, do I like this or do I not like this? And, and that guy's going to teach you so much. Pay attention to the old people. Um. There's some great young hunters out there. That are, they're harder hunters than me. They're tearing it up. But I've always watched the guys that are in their 60s or 70s or even into their 80s and learn from them, listen to them. Uh, too many people, ah, he doesn't, you know, he's old now. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Times are different. Pay attention to those guys, and they're going to shorten your learning curve. And then when you finally get a dog, you want something if you can 
that is hunting in the area you're hunting, that's a big one. I'm telling you, I've hunted all over, and dogs perform differently in different places. The the terrain, the, the forest recover, the amount of water, standing water, running water, roads, distractions around people. There's so many different things. So, so if you're going to choose a dog, try to find one, hopefully, from your mentor. Maybe he'll give you something. Don't be afraid to take an old dog. Maybe it's a little slower than he wants. He doesn't need it. That's a great dog for a young fella. You're yeah. going to go out. You're going to catch some game. You're going to have a dog that, that listens and, and that you enjoy. Because you got to enjoy it or you're going to give it up. And you're not going to stick with it. Uh, you know, and, and just res- resist. The Internet is, is a great tool, but it is such an evil place for dogs. We can all advertise. We can all uh, exploit our own egos too easily yeah. on, on the Internet. It, it's it's awful. you gotta you got to build hound hunting to me is about, it's just like this event right here, Plot Days. I don't come down here for the dog events. I come down here for the people. That's right. Building a relationship. <laughs> and you don't build a relationship in one month. You build a relationship. 10 years, 15 right. years. Right. That's where you're going to learn. So so look for those people that are in it for the long term, not the short term. Everybody wants to hunt with their buddies. But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of these young guys, they, they don't think of longevity and, and promoting the sport. They're causing problems in places they probably shouldn't be hunting because they don't care. They can't look ahead far enough. Now, we need these young guys, and, and we want them there, but um, – Pay attention to the older guys and, and learn a few tricks. Uh, Roy's a great one. He's out there. I'll tell you what, when the garden's in and there's a new landowner in town, here's some tomatoes. You know, here's here's a few things from the garden. I just caught some trout. You know, that man right there is building a relationship. And because of it, he can with hunt la- all with over. With landowners. With landowners. Yeah. yeah. With landowners, as well as other hunters. You know, it, it goes both ways. And... The guy that just storms in there and does what he wants and cuts loose on a red-hot strike off of somebody's bird feeder at 4 in the morning, it's going to make some bad feelings for people. And it's going to be bad for Bad this. for everybody yeah. in this sport. We were just talking about the deal in Vermont, Heath, about, mm-hmm. you know, it's coming. It, it, yep. it's, a, it's nonstop, so we have to take care of it. Getting back to what you said about, you know, finding an older guy, you know, before I get there, I'll, I'll tell you, I talked to my wife this morning. She says, have you seen a lot of nice dogs? Have you finally found a, you know, she's worried that I'm going to bring another dog home. But but she's trying to, she's sneaky like that. And uh, I told her, I said, I really haven't looked at dogs while I was here. You know, a dog would catch my eye or something while I'm walking down through there. But like you said, Mark, you know, talking, seeing friends and seeing people and talking to people and meeting new people and you know, the Browns are here, and Joe and Nancy Hudson, and Mike Colley's here, and, you know, David Williams. Just just being here, and that's the where people get to in this whole thing when you stay in it long enough. If you're not just worried about your own reputation and proving something in the woods, you know. Because at the end of the day, it's all about relationships and and things like that yeah take so. your take your ego fold it up put it in your pocket come to one of these events and meet the real legends and and learn something yeah from them. so my answer I'll, I'll i'll put my spin on it i think a person who is going to get into uh, hounds that, that thinks they have that desire to do that i like what both of you said um 
one of the things I would go a step farther is just find that person. There, there are plenty of 70-year-old legends here that would welcome you along for the hunt. Show up with a dog leash, a pair of boots, and go get dogs. Drag hogs out of the marsh. You know, Mike Colley, we, we, we joked around with on that podcast last one. He was in. What, what do you look for in somebody you want to take hunting? He says draggers. Sixteen you know? years old and all yeah. the drive in the world. Be that guy. If you if you show any of these guys that you any of these men these houndsmen here that you're in it for that part of it too. That I'm, I'm not just here to turn my dog loose. I'm not just here to stand around and, and brag about my own dog that, you know, I'm here to do the work. So if you're new, find those legends. Make con- Hey, I'm interested in bear hunting. Do you mind if I tag along? And I won't bring a dog. I'm bringing a dog leash and a pair of boots and a strong back and a strong mind. And I'm willing to, you know, they're going. those guys will pick you up. And I'll tell you what, when you stick with them, to the end and you look at these larger hunting groups oh so and so left so and so left they just they filter off and there's still two or three dogs to catch and then you'll look and there'll be two or three guys out of 30 that are still there at the end and if that kid is still one of those they'll open their world to you can write your own ticket you can get anything you want yep 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 well, we're going to talk about scent, and I think we talked about <laughs> see that's a, everything but scent. <laughs> yeah. So that's okay. That's okay. The best laid plans sometimes turn into something better, and I think this was something we haven't ever covered on a podcast was was selection. You know how important that selection is. I still think it's a. I mean, I still think it's a. I mean, and like I said, I do it. I and I, I there's things that I see in police dogs that I. Yep, this is what I want. This is what I'm looking for. But I feel like I still struggle in the hound world. I mean, I really do. I mean, you want a dog that finds dope? I can go out and get you one. Right. But for- why? Why? Why are we? You, so you don't think? Do you think we can achieve that eight out of ten? I sure would like to. I mean, that's my goal. <laughs> but you know, for me, like I said, I, I mean, I raised three or four or a litter of puppies, and and I pick them out. Well, the thing about police work and hounds that are so different i need that dog to use his nose to search a vehicle which i give him the search pattern Mm -hmm. and to alert and i'm using his his natural instinct to alert i'm not teaching him to alert he's doing it on his own for a hound that dog's got a trail there's a lot of pieces he's got to run not have no quit in him he's got to catch and stay and then he's got a tree and stay at the tree so Mm -hmm. i'm asking that dog to do five different things and then, you know, we we talk about what everybody's preference is, and I'm like Mark, like I I don't have a I don't have a trail trail dog right now. Like I've started over, and you know whatever. I like to trail, you know, but everybody's definition of a trail dog is a little different. You know, if I go to North Carolina where they run off baits, and they say, oh, I got a trail dog. They jump him down on a bait. He goes 200 yards and jumps. <laughs> well, okay. We're, is that a trail dog? Yeah, man. You know, that, that bear was here. Got his bear on his feet. You know, that bear was five hours ago. So, for me, I can't run off baits. So, I free cast my dogs or rig, mm-hmm. and rigging is different than free cast. And I free cast my dogs. I go in the woods. I may walk all day long yep. and not hit a track. So, when I hit a track, 
you got to be able to I take I want to take it. that track, yeah. whatever it is. So right now our bear population is good. So, yeah, I want a dog that can that can trail a track up, you know. So for me, I think the police dog stuff's a lot easier, yeah. honestly. I do. Yeah. I mean, I can do this series of tests on it, and if it does this stuff on this test, then I got what I'm looking for. For bear hunting or hound hunting or, you know. Hound hunting in general, it's the most complex set of traits <clears throat> of any performance animal. It's just like, you know, I'm reading about the King uh, Ranch quarter horses. And, well, that's a lot easier thing in a nutshell. I mean, you can pick those five traits, you know, but here you go. Now we're back to a hound. We need the speed. We need the brains. We need the nerve. Then we need a dog that can handle well. Then then we want a dog that's quiet in the yard. And then it's got a rig. And But then I want a close hunting dog because I like to free cast and, yeah, you, and walk the ridges. I mean, that's a pile of things yeah, to look Yeah, if you go to for. Idaho and you've got, you've got a big wide hunting dog that free casts and you don't know where they're at, <laughs> then you're talking about wolf, wolf bait. bait. You know? Wolf bait. So, so, again, regionally, you have to find the dog that works in your area. If you're in a high bear population, you probably don't want the dog that's going to trail 24-hour-old tracks, honestly. I mean, you're going to spend a lot of time. When you could have run four or five bears, you're still trailing one and haven't even jumped it. Right. But mm-hmm. then you're in a place where there's not many bears or free. You know, I like to hunt just like you. I like to walk the ridges uh, years when the beach and the oak is in. Mm. Favorite way to hunt. Get away from the roads, the vehicles. You take six dogs, they're all loose, and you go and you walk. And uh, that's fun, but you got to take the tracks as they come like that. You know, talk about, you know, the difference in police and hounds, too. When I'm teaching uh, a new canine team, which is a, a handler and a dog, you know, in my basic school, I teach them, you know, so my dog does patrol, he does tracking, and he does narcotics. So I've got three things there. Well, my dog is stronger in two of those things than he is three. And I think that's the same as hounds. We, you find a dog that does them all, you've got that special dog. So I got a dog that, okay, he runs good, he's got good speed, he catches good, he trees good, but maybe he don't have the nose quite that I want, but I can't get rid of him because he's got those other qualities that mm-hmm. I need. So, And I think when we say pack of dogs, all five or six of those dogs or how many ever you're running, each dog has its own place in that pack. You know, if right. you get three or four that doing the same thing, then you've got a phenomenal pack. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I, I, I think I it's coach, harder. I uh, coach lacrosse. I've coached youth lacrosse, and right now I'm coaching high school lacrosse. And, and I look at it, that pack of hounds is just like the kids. And you got to figure out what that dog or what that kid's strength is, what his weaknesses are, and put him where he can be successful. And everyone's different. And, and that's the houndsman, you know. Put the time in to learn those dogs and learn where they can be successful, and overall, you'll be a much more successful hunter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's that's valuable. That goes back to the podcast we did on leadership. You know, we did a podcast about leadership, and that's what whether you're managing people or a pack of hounds, uh, you know, you've got to to have some leadership qualities there about. You know, don't expect, don't, one of the, one of the main things that, that we always taught was don't put your officers in impossible situations, you know, um, don't set them up for failure is how we, how we set it. Don't set them up for failure. And there's a difference between setting them up for failure to test 
and setting them up for failure when you expect them to be successful. You know, if you expect success and you take a dog and put him in a situation that he can't be successful, you're setting him up for failure. And, you know, it goes back to the maturity thing. I mean, that's why this is so complex, Heath, because talking about maturity in dogs, there's a certain age where you're not worried about that because they can handle it. Mm -hmm. You know, they can handle the, the, the shortcoming. But sometimes the guy, the hunter can't, you know. Yeah, it's our egos. Yeah, exactly. What, what, I, somebody posted this. It may have been you. Somebody posted the, the biggest burden for a hound's a man's ego. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. you might have posted That's that. That's the greatest saying ever. It is. I mean, you know, sometimes we just got to bite our tongue and go on. And, you know, you're talking about tracks on, on police work. And we always say this in police work. You're only as good as your last deployment. Yeah. Because the next three times you go out and don't find a guy, <laughs> well, they ain't worth a nickel. That's right. They can't find nobody. Yeah. But, you know, it's like I tell them, you're, you're tracking the most sophisticated mammal on this planet. You know, you want to catch bear and coons, I got you. You want to catch people, that's a little bit more difficult task. Right. I mean, this this animal, mammal, is, it can think, it can, it can process, it can outthink you. Um, if they know how scent works and... You know they can they can they can mess with the dog yeah, they if can. they know how scent works. Yes, so, sir. Um, you know it's a lot of difference, and we built we weren't catching people with our dogs when I first started at um, Christiansburg where I'm at now, and about three years in I said we got to change something. We're not we're not being successful. The guys don't have any faith in us, and then we changed our training, we changed our tactics, and we started catching people, and I had numerous guys come to me and say. I thought dogs weren't worthless. And now, every time something happens, we're the first person they call. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you've got to be able to be successful. And if you're not successful, you start losing that trust yeah. with, within the police world of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. Anything else, guys? Any final thoughts? No, it uh, went a different direction than I thought it was going to go, but that's the fun but, of it. But we talked about this part of it, you yeah, know, genetics. And absolutely. I think I think mainly the thing is I don't I think it's true in Europe, and I think it's I I highly respect European breeders. Uh, they've got a whole different set of standards than we do, um, but at the same time, there is not a silver bullet you know it still comes down to screening the dog finding the right spot for the dog you know finding where he can work uh things like that so uh you know finding every it goes back to that old saying the old timers always say it you know you can take the best and the best and you breed them together and it's still a crapshoot of what you're going to get so part of being that breeder is being able to Swallow your pride and saying that one didn't work, boys. We're going on to the next one. And if, if if somebody tells you they haven't flopped on their face breeding dogs, then they're lying. I mean it. But here's the thing: I've always told people that I have probably learned more from my failures than I have from my successes. Oh yeah, when you because when you have success, then it's time for your ego to puff oh, up. Yeah. And, well, oh yeah. Oh look that. what I did. You know. <laughs> wow. Yeah. But when, when you're flat on your face, you know, eating dirt, you're like, oh gosh. What, what do I need? What, what do, do I, I need to fix? change? <laughs> well, the only way to be successful is fail. Fail. Yes. Yep. Like, and you know, we was talking about breeding. The the difference in uh, Americans and Europeans is if they breed a cross and that cross is duds, they're not breeding those dogs again. And that's what happens. We give them to some kids down the road yep. or whatever. Next thing you know, yep. Bobby down the road's like, this is the best dog ever, and he's breeding this dog, and then we end up with another litter. worth. It just repeats itself. 
we've got to figure out whether we spay them, neuter them. Um, last couple dogs that I give away, I spayed and neutered them both. Right. Because they were not up to my standards. Right. So I took care of that. Yes. But now that's something that we, as if we are breeding, have got to be able to be willing to do we've got to be able to fix where this don't go on yeah we yeah. got to take them out of the gene pool yep yeah because yeah. You absolutely can, you can take certain you take a hall of fame dog hall of fame dog pedigree loaded with hall of fame dogs well maybe i could breed it and either sell puppies or maybe it'll skip a generation you know i've got a dog right now i got a walker jip at my house right now that is bred out the wazoo and she's she's nine months old and she's not gonna cut it like, and I mean her her pedigree is stacked, and I'm so disappointed that I have this genetic dog here that has got dogs in it that I want, but I can't use it. Right. Like I can't I can't do it. So for me, um, you know, not and and this is different for everybody, but for me personally, I I have found that if I don't sell pups, I I make the honest choices. It's a lot easier. If you've got, you know, $1,000 invested into an eight-week-old pup by the time you get it here and buying it, boy, you feel like you got to get something for your return. But, you know, if this pup was given to you by somebody, I feel, you know, the investment isn't there. You make better choices. And, and culling is, uh, you know, it can mean as simple as you said. You just, it's removed from the breeding population, and that can be spayed and neutered. Um, but, but the culling program is super important. And uh, people in general have gotten softer, uh, and that's where the Europeans, I think, excel as their culling programs are ruthless. That and, they are. And that is the difference, in my personal opinion, uh, that a lot of people here in the States, you know, we've, we've turned these dogs into human traits. We've applied these human traits to them, the Bambi syndrome. Anthropomorphism. You know, there you go. And they just can't make the hard choice of... Uh, my dog's sad. My dog... Yep. My yep. dog this. My dog... It's a performance animal, and at the end of the day, we have to hold that animal accountable. Did it meet our standards for performance? And if it didn't, then it should be removed mm -hmm. and and not used. And and if it did, then we move forward with it. No excuses, no ego involved. It's just not cutting it. That's what I say at the house because I have a bunch of girls that <laughs> love dogs, and I use Clay Newcomb's thing. They're utilitarian. Yes. They work or they don't stay here. Right. Yeah, it's it's one of the two. <laughs> like it's their option. I'm yep. good. I'm good. At my house with that, as long as it's my hunting, my hounds. Now, Roxy, the wonder dog, and, oh, yeah. and <laughs> now Axel, the, the pit bull, and my bulldog. When your kids get older and they leave, it's kind of fun to mess with the dogs and, yeah. and talk to them like kids. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and my wife get, really gets into it. Yeah. But so. the thing is, we have got to give those dogs opportunity. Yeah opportunities yeah. we got to give them opportunity important. to succeed yeah. leadership yeah. we got to give them opportunity to, to succeed and if they have that opportunity then they don't succeed then there's where we need to figure out what you're what the leader at that point and you've got to make the right decision yeah for you me know? for me personally with those pups i try to give them to people that i think are going to give them the fair shake that are going to put them in the woods they don't always have to be the best hunter but they're going to give them opportunity yeah. and 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 i i kind of place them and some people probably get upset and they get their noses out of joint about it, but it's it's because 
I want to better the breed. I don't want to just make more dogs. And I certainly only make a cross when I feel I should really get something out of that dog because it's an exceptional dog. Mm -hmm. It's not just making a cross. You know, I'm not selling puppies. I'm not looking to repopulate the world with plot dogs. Um, I want to make a cross because I want to see. I think that could be the next well, one. Well, your your Facebook account's going to blow up now with people asking for dogs and <laughs> and telling you that, that you know they'll give it a chance. And, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, but uh, yeah, but we breed. I mean, that's the same with me. The only reason I breed is when I need another. When dog. When I need another dog. When I need another dog, and I'm like you, I'm not selling them. Like yeah. they go to the guys in my hunting group, and you can hunt with the dog. In the in and this is how <laughs> I've sort of built the program. I want to follow like the Europeans. I've placed those dogs, and a lot of them I've tried to place close enough that I can go and hunt with them because everybody's standards are different. You and want to be able to evaluate I them. want to evaluate yeah, you the don't dog. Need, you don't, yeah. Some starry-eyed yeah. kid's got a dog that, that's you know, opening on a track and treeing yeah. with other dogs. You need to be able to evaluate and, what you're doing. And that makes a huge difference because then you can move forward, I think, with the best dog in the litter and, and make that best choice breeding-wise. Whereas if you're selling them, you're never going to see them again. Are there... They're across the world. You know, that dog's dead to you as a breeder. Yeah. Uh, you're not yeah. going to spend, you know, if it's out in California, you're not going to spend the money to to get it. But if you place them close and with friends, and, and it could even be down here. I'm in Maine. There's some down here in Tennessee. I'll come down here just to hunt yep. with a dog just sure. to see. But that helps a lot uh, in your selection process, I think, and is really important. Oh, well, we could probably turn this into a three-hour conversation. <laughs> It's what happens when you get guys together that have a lot of input and things like that. But uh, been fun. This is. Uh, I guess we took some angles I didn't really think we were, but I've enjoyed. That's it. okay. I, I really host have. this thing, and it took some angles yeah. I didn't think it would. So <laughs> Sorry. I had this clear plan. <laughs> no, when I came in. It's no. great because I think I think you he three really brought a different element to it, and it always fascinates me. Um, these working animals from different aspects to draw the parallels and see there's a lot of things we can use so what if a guy's a bird dog guy or a you know a bite dog uh you know police dog drug whatever uh horses i mean there there's so many things that are parallels to the breeding process and selection you know one of the guys i'll, I'll wrap this up here but one of I had a dog breeder tell me one time, if you really want to understand genetics and how to breed, he said, some, find somebody that, that raises pigeons, rolling pigeons, rollers. He said, those guys that are students at that have figured out, you know, genetic markers and how to cross and they can, they can, they can do it in a much faster more, yeah much faster and more condensed time frame than we can as houndsmen but there's something to learn there so uh that's backing up what you said mark you know the parallels we got to look at all of it if you're a student and you want to figure this out you can't just look in the hound world you got to look at why you know you see six week old uh german short uh german short hairs that instinctively when they walk up to a wing they lock up on point you know you got to figure out why the pigeon rolls or whatever there's a lot of parallels in this world and we can't get tunnel vision on our little piece of it you know there's a lot more information out there for us to glean if you want to be good at what you do you've always got to be learning yeah i mean you got to study you got to you got to be a student and you know i've been training police dogs for since 03 so almost 20 years 17 years 
you know, I've been running hounds since 94, and I still, every every day, I learn something, I pick up something, I find a new training method, I find a new way to do things. So you got to be learned. You've got to be able to open up and learn. you yeah. got to. If you're yeah. gonna, if you want to be really good at what you do, you need to learn. Yeah. And not just be like that one track. Yeah. You know, and tunnel I, vision. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, I mean, you can't. I've I've been there. You know, oh, we my, all my have. first 10, 10, 15 years of it. Well, we know houndsmen too. You know, guys that are still they've done it the same way for thirty years, and they thought they had it all figured out, and they're still behind the eight ball. Yeah, they're still trying to figure things out. The only thing they've been doing is chasing dogs through the woods for 30 years. And sometimes I'm that guy. Oh, we all go through it. That's right. But when you look around and you try to learn the different aspects of it, it kind of gives you a peace, inner peace that I don't have to be successful every time. You don't have to be. You can find your – I find my satisfaction. Sometimes I don't even jump the bear. But I watch that dog trail for 15 miles. It's 20 below zero. Been through three rivers, been through the ledges. The snow conditions have changed six times. That's a win for me. Yeah. You know, I never even got a cat race. But, boy, that was fun. Yeah. So It's a long-term goal. It shouldn't be a short-term. Right. It should be a long-term. Well, I think one thing that's contributed to that, I think, and God bless uh, competition coon hunters, but. When you look at the way that system set up with baby stakes and super stakes yeah. and, you know, you got the, the pup earnings and, and different things, we've tried to speed that up. And without the competition coon hunters out there, we wouldn't have a whole lot of houndsmen left in this, the United States, you know, and, and oh, thank yeah. goodness there's that out there and our hound breeding would be a lot lower. But, you know, being a student of it and watching it, I've seen the expectations of our hounds people don't know patience if all you've ever done is competition coon hunt because by six months old you need got to be doing some stuff we haven't even put them in the woods yet right right (laughs) yeah and they think we're all crazy you know why would i feed a dog for two years that i haven't won anything with yet right or haven't hunted yet so guys we better wrap this one up man i appreciate your time heath i'm glad absolutely yeah, you're like you're like spur of the moment, no prep time or anything. Just jump <laughs> this, this in. This guy killed it. It put us to shame. Oh, he, he was just well, the he last put second. you to shame. No. I just shut up. This yeah. was the easiest job hosting I've ever had because I've got two good houndsmen here that that uh, are students of the game, and I just kind of shut up and sat back and let you guys go back and forth. That's great. Well, next time we'll do the one on scent. Yeah. All right. We, we'll still get back to the scent, scent years that time. You because bet. that is, like you said before, it's the question we get all the time is how scent works. And, you know, I get that in my, my tracking dogs. You know, my tracking, our tracking dogs, we're not tracking down six-hour-old tracks. It's a completely right. different ball game than the hounds. Yeah. And the biggest part of that is contamination. You know, You've got a better network than I ever had. It was uh, whenever I'd get called to it, <laughs> two days to, later you get to call at two o'clock in <laughs> yeah. the morning and it's like well when did he when did he run from the scene eight o'clock in the morning he mm-hmm. was, we've been out there looking for him all day had every volunteer fireman out there and we've been looking for this lost person all day i wish you would have called me 16 hours ago yeah and that's know? what the difference in successes are with with you know the hounds and the, the police world is contamination is a killer mm-hmm. and you know, when I teach the classes, you know, I, we teach a 
a tactical tracking class with the canines. And, you know, once you get those guys out there and show them, they're like, oh, yeah, I probably messed up your stuff a bunch of times. Yeah, you have. Yeah. You know, dog trying to work through contamination is a lot different than bear track crossing the road or something that we're, we're able to put them on. So Scent discrimination is a whole uh, chapter of a podcast for us, Heath. It is. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's awesome stuff. I mean, when I cat hunt, just what I've learned, I try to stay three to four feet beside the track and never walk on the track. My guys squall at me because if we're doing a track in the snow yep. and they're walking it, I tell them, stay off the track. Stay off the stay track. Stay off the track. Yeah. And then they go into a feed plot and there's circles and circles and circles. And I'm like, yep, now find the end of that track. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah. yeah. Great stuff. Yep. yep. Well, guys, we're going to wrap it up until we get together next time, hopefully sooner than later. Definitely. You follow your hounds and I'll follow mine.